0: Good morning. Luke chapter 7. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearings of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when a centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourselves, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let, let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, come and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gates of the town, behold, a man who had, di- who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, she was a widow, and a, con- and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep, Then he came up and touched the bear, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases, and plagues, and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. He answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, Poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in kings' courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he whom it is written. Behold, I send my messengers before your face, who will prepare the way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, they declared God they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist have come eating eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Amen.
1: Check one, two, we good? Sweet. Cardi, thank you for reading that, brother. That was a lot of verses. The word of God is always a blessing, isn't it? Let me pray and let's get into it. Father, we thank you for this time. We ask that as we study this passage this morning, these, these multiple scenes out of Luke's gospel, that you would help us speak to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 How many of you are feeling critical this morning? You don't have to raise your hand, but some of you did. Thank you for that. (laughs) We all have a tendency to be critical at times. Uh, I think of uh, a hot summer July day when I was a child, uh, typical of a lot of us during the summertime as kids. Uh, I remember sitting back, bored, uh, critical, and uh, my friends come up to me and say, Joel, what do you want to do? You want to uh, you want to play basketball? I'm like, no, it's too, too hot. Um, do you want to play football? No, the sun's too bright. Do you want to go swimming? No, I don't feel like swimming. Uh, do you want to go on a bike ride? Why do you think I want to go on a bike ride? Do you want to go inside? No, I hate being inside. Do you want to be outside? No, I hate being outside. <laughs> Remember how it was when you were a child in the middle of the summer? Critical, we have a tendency to be critical. And even as adults, I think we learn to suppress it a little bit better. Uh, But the reality is, is we get critical at times. And I want to ask you this question. I wonder if you have ever realized uh, or or sensed uh, somewhat of a sense of uh, a critical spirit directed toward God. When things aren't going well, when there is suffering in your life, when we are in the heat of the day, I wonder if there's a sense in which we turn our criticism toward God. So I want to speak to you this morning on this passage under the title, A Critical Faith. A Critical Faith. Back in the 1800s, the Prime Minister of the UK once said, it is much easier to be critical than it is to be correct. And what he's saying by that is it's easier for us to just have this critical spirit than to say something that's actually helpful, than to try to build up, than to to come with a solution. It's easier to sit back and be critical. And this is what we see in Luke as Luke is comparing and contrasting in so many ways pure faith Versus that nasty faith of the Pharisees. We're just coming off this sermon that Jesus preaches where he contrasts these things. And he shows us that the Pharisees' faith is really a critical kind of faith. And what we've been noticing over the last couple weeks is that the Pharisees' faith is the kind of faith that looks at each other with this critical eye. But the reality is this. A critical spirit doesn't end simply criticizing your fellow man. The truly critical move their criticism from man to God. And what I believe in chapter 7, Luke is trying to show us as he continues this contrast, is that the Pharisees' real problem is that they have a critical faith toward God. And a critical faith toward God is not a faith at all. Look at verse 32. Jesus compares this generation, he calls them. This generation, I believe he's talking about the religious establishment there. He compares them to children. Who say, we played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you, but you did not weep. A critical faith cannot be pleased. The reality is, is that we want a God of our imagination. How often do we say something or think something such as, if I were God, I would do away with natural disasters. If I were God, I would make my brother live. How often do we think that we could actually do a better job than God? What are we doing? We're essentially saying, God, here is our mold of who we think you should be. And in order for me to be happy with you, you have to fit into my mold And if God doesn't fit into our mold, then we get critical. I want to show you this morning how a critical faith leads to no faith at all. Before we do that, though, I want to get a sense as to what's going on in these texts. There's four different scenes here, and let me just kind of briefly breeze through the text, these four scenes. Uh, which all really blend together, and I want to show you how they build this fact that a critical faith is not a faith at all. First, in scene one, verses one through ten, we see a centurion's great faith. Now, a centurion was a Roman soldier, but not just a soldier. He was a commander. Historically, a centurion would have a hundred soldiers underneath him. By this time... A centurion would typically have much more than that, two or three hundred soldiers maybe. He's a very powerful man. He has a servant who is sick. Now, uh, the servant who is sick, the centurion believes, is worthy of Jesus healing him. Why? It's because the, ser- the, centurion, or the servant is someone who has built a synagogue. Now, what is a synagogue? A synagogue was a house of prayer during the Roman world. They would build these synagogues uh, for people who are God-fearers, people who worship Yahweh, but they might not live in Jerusalem. And so they could go to the synagogue and they could there pray. Well, what do we see here? What I think uh, we see is a centurion who likely believes in Yahweh. He's not just simply a Roman. He's not just simply a Gentile, but he is someone who likely believes in In Yahweh, this is why he cares about the synagogue. Now, the centurion, keep in mind, would also be hated by the Jews. He would be seen as a symbol of everything that is wrong with their society. The centurion sends some people to Jesus, and he says, I have a servant who's near death. Would you heal him? Jesus begins to go to the centurion's house, but as you saw in the text... It gets interesting. The centurion sends some other people and they stop him in his tracks. The centurion basically says, I never intended for you to come to my house. And this is where Jesus sees the centurion's great faith. Look at the text. In verse 8, he says, for I too am a man... Under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. Do this, and he does it. Now in verse 9, when Jesus hears this, he marvels, turns to the crowd, and starts bragging about this guy's faith. Here's the picture. Jesus gets stopped in his tracks. The word is, hey, I'm somebody who's a boss, I know what it's like to be a boss, and I can boss people all around. Jesus turns to the crowd, it says, as if to say, do you hear what he just said? Did you miss it? And the reality is, the way you're all looking at me, the answer is yes, I missed it. (laughs) I didn't quite see it there. Jesus sees something in this guy's explanation of why he should not come all the way to the house to heal the servant, that demonstrates something about his faith, and it blows his mind. And he turns to you and he says, don't miss it. Did you hear it? What's he saying? Well, the man, the centurion, is basically saying, I know what it's like to be a boss. When you're a boss, you can just tell people to do something. I know... That you can just simply tell this sickness to go away from wherever you're at and it will be done. This man knows that Jesus is not just a boss, but Jesus is the boss. He's not just a Lord, but Jesus is the Lord of all Lords. He is the Lord over sickness. What this man understands is if Jesus says to a sickness, be gone, yeah. then it's going to be gone. Do you understand that Jesus is the ultimate boss? Yeah. If Jesus wants to command something in your life, it's done. Yeah. And as great as it would be for us to be freed from the sicknesses that ail us, do you realize That in his sovereignty, he has come to you through the cross and said your sins are forgiven. How many of you understand that he is the Lord of lords who can forgive your sins? That's phenomenal. Is anybody excited about this? I I don't think you're excited about the fact that Jesus is the Lord of lords. And in his perfect narrative, he has decided to forgive you of your sins through his vicarious blood shed on the cross. Well, this centurion gets it. He understands who Jesus is and declares him as Lord. Now in scene 2, verses 11 through 17, we see Jesus raise the widow's son Now one thing that's interesting about this scene is that the widow never asks Jesus to raise her dead son. Look at verse 13 in your text. It says when the Lord saw her, who's her, the widow weeping over the loss of her only son. What does it say? He had what's that word? Come on, somebody. He had compassion on her. She didn't even ask for it. And He has compassion on her. Do you understand that this is the same kind of compassion that led Jesus to the cross to do something for you before you ever even asked for it? Does anybody understand that Jesus died for your sins while you were still a sinner. Jesus saves us without our permission. He does a work of compassion on our behalf. This is the work of the Savior. This is the kind of Jesus that walked this planet and died for us, a God of all compassion. He, we, he says to the lady, "Do not weep." Now that's a funny thing to say at a funeral. I was just of my aunt's funeral, and it would have been funny to tell people, "Hey, don't weep, don't weep. We should weep. We should grieve, right? But Jesus says, "Do not weep. Why? It's because Jesus is not just simply the Lord over all sickness. He's not just simply the Lord of the living. But Jesus is the Lord of the dead. And if Jesus wants to raise a dead man, Jesus can raise a dead man. He says to the man lying on this bier, He says, Get up. And immediately his heart begins to pump. Blood begins moving through his veins and his arteries. His skin grows warm to the touch. Breath enters his lungs, and he sits up. He raises the dead. Now this leads us to the very next scene. John the Baptist in scene three has a question. Now does anybody remember who John the Baptist is? We saw him at the beginning of this gospel. John the Baptist was the preparer for Jesus. He was the one who was Preaching this message of repentance, baptizing people into this message of repentance, getting the road ready for the Messiah. Now, John, by this time, is locked up. He's in a Roman prison. And he sends out a question Are you the Messiah? Verse 19 Are you the one who is to come? He asks. Or should we look for another? Now, as this message comes from John's disciples to Jesus, Jesus is in the middle of healing people, and, and so his response at first, I'm looking at, it, I'm thinking, is Jesus just too busy to give much of an answer? Like I, I I picture Jesus in the middle of this huge crowd, and he gets this, John, hey John the Baptist, John wonders, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Is Jesus just simply giving him a quick answer? I don't think so. What Jesus says, the message he wants them to deliver back to John, is this. In verse 22, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. He's not just arbitrarily throwing out some things that are happening in the moment. Jesus is bringing together a number of messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. In particular, Isaiah twenty-nine eighteen, Isaiah thirty-five five, and Isaiah chapter sixty-one. What Jesus is saying is, "Is John look at the signs." Look at what was prophesied about this one that is to come. Look at what's happening all around Israel in this moment. What Jesus is saying is this. My life speaks for itself. Faith, genuine faith, is receiving Christ for who He is, not for who we want Him to be. Genuine faith is receiving Christ based on the evidences that God has given us, not based on the evidences that we arbitrarily come up with. What I mean is this. If Jesus were to heal my cancer, then I would believe. If Jesus would save my sibling, then I would believe what we're saying is is if Jesus can fit my mold if he comes and 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 demonstrates the evidences that I come up with then I will receive him in faith what we see in this text is the message that goes to John is simply this his life speaks for itself God has given us evidence Historically, of who Jesus is, faith receives Jesus based on the evidence that God has given us. He goes on in this text in verses 24 through 27. Jesus here affirms John the Baptist's ministry. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, Don't get me wrong. Don't get John wrong. I want you to know that John is a great man. And he affirms his own work. He says John was a prophet, and not just any prophet, but John was like the prophet. Prophesied, he quotes Malachi, prophesied in Malachi, who is coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. Nobody in verse 21 or verse 28, born of women, is greater than John the Baptist. That is quite a statement. But then he goes on, look at the very next breath in verse 28. He says, yet, the one who is the least in the kingdom is greater than he. Well, what's he saying there? What he's saying is this, John is a son of promise. But those who see the whole of the gospel message and believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, repent of their sins, trust in Jesus Christ, and become part of the kingdom of God, the least in the kingdom. Is greater than John the Baptist. Not in our substance, but in who Christ is. We are sons not of promise, but we are sons and daughters of the fulfillment of Christ. Now, at that, everybody around him flips out and they get excited and they praise God. But Luke wants to point out another group of people who are celebrating in this moment. Look at verse 29. He says, all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God right. They declared God just. Why does he point out the tax collectors? Wouldn't all people have worked for them? He wants to point out that there is a group of hated individuals among this people. And they are declaring God to be right. Because when you are on the outside, and Jesus shows you what it looks like to come into the inside, that wells up all sorts of delight in your soul. They declare that God is just, that God is right in what he's doing. Now this moves us lastly to scene four. And this is uh, the, the, the point of this wedge that Luke is trying to drive home to show us the critical nature of the Pharisees' faith. First, in verse 30, it says that they rejected the purposes of God. You've got the true disciples of Jesus Christ who have embraced the work of John the Baptist, meaning they have embraced repentance, but the Pharisees reject the purposes, uh, purpose of God. And then he goes on and he says, what shall I liken this generation to? What are they like? He says they're like these children. Who who cannot be pleased. And then he gives two examples. He says, John, in verse uh, 33, John the Baptist came along fasting and they criticized him. They said he was strange. Jesus has come along eating and they criticize him. They say he's a glutton. His point is this. The Pharisees' faith is the kind of critical faith that cannot be pleased. They reject God's purposes because they cannot be pleased. Let me summarize This text, and then I'm going to give you a couple points of application here. Faith in Jesus receives him as he is. The first section highlights the faith of an outsider as an indictment on the insiders. This sets the stage. A resurrection driven by Jesus' compassion introduces the question of John the Baptist. John's question is answered by the signs and wonders accomplished by Jesus. The message is clear. Jesus is the Messiah, but many in his day will reject that truth. Why? It's because they cannot be pleased. They're critical, and they refuse to see the signs in front of them. They have a critical faith, and as a result, they have no faith at all. Let me draw out a couple points of application to show you how your critical nature toward God will lead you away from faith in God. First, critical faith begins with a posture of privilege. Critical faith begins with a posture of privilege. Imagine with me for a moment that I'm being a jerk to my wife, which uh, it's difficult to imagine, I understand. But just bear with me for a moment. Imagine that I had it in me to be a jerk to my wife. And she comes home with a strawberry cheesecake blizzard for me. And I say, wow. This is real nice. And I enjoy that strawberry cheesecake blizzard. Why? It's because I don't deserve it. Here's my point. If I thought I deserved it, I would say, why did you buy me a strawberry cheesecake blizzard? That is the nastiest kind of blizzard on the menu. They're disgusting. Have you ever had one? Anybody with, with sensibility would know that a Reese's peanut butter cup blizzard <laughs> is the kind of blizzard that you want to buy for your husband. Why are you buying me a strawberry cheesecake Blizzard. And I would throw that nasty thing into the trash can where it belongs. My point is this. If we think we deserve something, we're going to criticize what we get. But if I see myself as utterly unworthy of any kindness from my wife, then I would receive that nasty strawberry cheesecake blizzard as a wonderful gift and I would enjoy every sip of it. Listen, a critical faith begins when you have a posture of privilege before God. When you think you deserve something from God, you become critical. But on the contrary, when you believe that you are unworthy before God, you are thankful. When we think that we are privileged, we are damned. When we realize that we are damned, we become truly privileged. This is the great irony of God's kingdom. When you think that you're on the inside, you discover yourself on the outside. But when you fall on your knees and you realize, I am so far Outside of God's kingdom. God says you are now qualified. To come inside. To my kingdom. Let me compare some things I see in this text first. These Pharisees think. That they are on the inside. When John the Baptist comes along. The reason they reject what God is doing there. Is because they can't think of one thing. That they should repent of. And they refuse. John's ministry. And they call him possessed. They say that he is crazy. And they find themselves on the outside. In contrast, I love the faith of the centurion. If anybody knows that they are privileged in this world, it would have been the centurion. He probably had a cush salary from the Roman Empire. He had a lot of servants underneath him. If anybody would have felt deserving of something, it might have been this Roman centurion. But as Jesus is walking to this centurion's house in verse 6, the word comes from the centurion, do not come. He says, I am not worthy. The Gospel begins with us saying, I am not worthy. Listen, friends, if you think you are worthy of God's love, you haven't got to the first step of understanding the gospel. We are unworthy of His love. You grow up in a Christian home. You grow up in a good family. You grow up going to church. Don't think that God owes you anything. I could turn that around. You grow up in a chaotic environment. You grow up abused. Don't think that God owes you anything. We are unworthy of God's love. We are unworthy of God's kindness. If God was love, then He would fill in the blank depending on how you answer that question, shows whether or not you think that you are privileged before God. Critical faith begins with this posture of privilege. Secondly, critical faith, it continues as it refuses to trust Critical faith refuses to trust. As a matter of fact, critical faith cannot trust. Let me give you another scenario. Imagine you're about to jump out of an airplane. You've got a parachute on, all right? So chill out. You're about to jump out of an airplane, airplane with a parachute on. And you say, I believe this parachute is going to catch me. But I'm not sure about these straps. And I don't know who packed this thing. And as a matter of fact, I've heard that red dye can weaken material. And this parachute happens to be red. And these buckles don't seem to be very tight. Are you ever going to jump out of that plane? Absolutely not. When we're critical, we cannot trust. Critical nature is the opposite of trust when we are critical before god how can we trust god now john the baptist in this text he asks a question and i want to point something out here john is confused and probably rightly confused in john's mind the messiah would come and do something about the roman empire And here he is, the forerunner of the Messiah, sitting in prison. And I think John is confused. Because Jesus is going around healing, acts of mercy and compassion. But John knows that the Messiah is going to come in judgment. And the Messiah is going to bring final judgment on all oppressors. And so he sends this question, are you the one? Or should we look for another? Listen. It's okay to ask questions. A faith that asks questions is not necessarily a critical faith. Now, we don't know what John's response was when his disciples came back with the answer. But we can only assume that John trusted Jesus Christ, even though there was plenty that he could have been criticizing. Looking at the Pharisees once again, in contrast to John the Baptist, the Pharisees refuse to trust. Jesus says, blessed are those, in response to John, who are not offended by me. And at every point in his ministry, the Pharisees cannot stop criticizing him. In contrast, blessed is the one who hears of the Lord Jesus Christ and receives, believes, trusts. Blessed is the one who encounters Jesus and trusts Him. I wonder if you are so critical in your spirit toward God. You look around at what God has ordained in this life and you cannot help but criticize Him. Maybe you even look at your own past mistakes and you can't help but bring criticism before God for allowing you to do such things. The crazy thing is in our criticism, we never get around to trusting Him. We're called to trust God. Can you trust Him? Thirdly, critical faith ends with the inability to please The inability, rather, to be pleased. The picture in the text, like I said, is of uh, spoiled children. Does anybody know what a spoiled child is like? We don't know what spoiled kids are like, do we? Pointing fingers. I saw a couple fingers pointed. All right. Amen. Um, uh, Spoiled children. Let's talk about them a little bit. Uh, they, They got a video game last week. And this week, they want a new video game. All right. They got a cell phone. Uh, that they were asking for, and now they want a new cell phone, right? A better cell phone. Um, uh, it's, it's too hot, and then it's too cold, <laughs> right? Um, I'm hungry. What do you want to eat? I don't know. What do we have? Well, we have macaroni and cheese. I don't want that. Peanut butter and jelly. I don't want that. Cereal. I don't want that. Chocolate. I don't want that. You're hungry, right, you're not hungry then. <laughs> exactly. What's going on? Uh, spoiled children are hard to please. Now, we shouldn't spend too much time ragging on spoiled children because we are the same way, aren't we? I wonder how many of you have already criticized everything about my sermon today. Just can't be pleased. Can't be pleased. In, in Jesus' final analogy, he, he references these spoiled kids that are playing. And essentially what he says is this. He's, re, he's referring to games that they would have played in their day. You wanted to play wedding, and so we played the flute, but you didn't dance. You wanted to play funeral, and so we played a dirge, but you didn't weep. Meaning, uh, you, you cannot be pleased. And this is the kind of faith that the Pharisees have. John fasted, and they were not pleased. Jesus ate. And they were not pleased. A critical faith ends with an inability to be pleased by God. I wonder how many of us could confess this inability to be pleased by God at times. We pray for food, that God would bring us some provision. And we get food, and we don't like the food that he gave us. We want better food. We pray for a job that He would provide for us and we get the job and we don't like our boss or we don't like the money that we're making. could be making more money. Do we ever take a a time out to just simply say, thank you, Lord, for what you have given me, for the many ways that you have provided for me. But when we are critical about God, all we can do is not be pleased with anything that He gives us. Oh, and let's not even begin to talk about the forgiveness of sins. Since when? Is it not enough that God has forgiven your sins? Maybe He doesn't give you anything else you pray for in life, but did He forgive your sins? Since when is it not enough that He's given you a promise that one day you will be freed even from the temptation to sin? You'll be freed from sin completely. Since when is it not enough that you have been given a promise. That you would be raised to, to, to new life. A body put back together. Never to die again. In a world that has been recreated. Since when? What God has given us. Since when is that not enough? When we become a Christian, we realize that we don't make demands God does. When we become a Christian, we realize that we don't give God grace when He messes up. God gives us grace when we mess up. Some bored children smeared Lindenburg, uh, uh cheese, L- L- Lindberger Lin- cheese, not Lindenberg. Lin- Have you ever smelled Lindberger cheese? Anybody know what Lindburger cheese is? Let me see a show of hands. couple of you. Um, it was a thing when I, when I was in, in uh, high school to take some Lindburger cheese and to uh, stick it in somebody's car because it smells like something you want to flush down the toilet, all right? Some bored kids put some Lindberger cheese on their sleeping grandfather's mustache. And so he wakes up, and he's like, What? What is that smell? He's looking all around the room and he cannot figure out what smells so bad. He goes into the kitchen and he's trying to figure out what died. He can't get rid of the smell in the house, even though he's cleaned the whole thing. He goes outside trying to figure out what smells, and what he realizes is that it's the whole world. The whole world now stinks. Family, listen. If everything around you smells, it might not be everything around you that is the problem. If everything at every turn in our life we feel like God smells, have you ever considered the fact that it might not be God that is the problem? Look at verse 35 as we close. He says, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What is that saying? Christ, who is the wisdom of God, is declared right by His children. Jesus came to the outcast and His children say, He is right. He comes to the Roman soldier, the centurion, and He says, He is is right. The tax collectors hear that they are great in God's kingdom, though despised in this world. And His children say, He is right. He comes to the widow in her distress. And His children say, He is right. He comes to us with compassion. Offers us grace before we've ever asked for it. And our response as children is, He's right. He's useful to our souls. He died for us. He converted us. And those who are His children say, He's right. He's right. He's just in all of His ways. He's forgiven us of our sins. He adopted us to be His children. He justified us and made us right. Can anybody shout with me? He's right. He's right. In all of His ways, there's no reason to criticize God. He's just. He's holy. He's kind. And we receive Him as He is. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we thank You. We thank You for the fact that You are right that you are just God is your children we declare this morning that we have no reason to criticize you God forgive us of our critical spirit that we have had toward you God increase in us the ability to trust may we trust you God in all that you do it's in Jesus name